There we go. Oh, there we go. <laughs> We're going to welcome a new Prime Minister very shortly. What are we expecting? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, fair enough. I was going to do a show of hands on what we're expecting, but I thought it might be a bit controversial. We're kind of trying to avoid any more riots. Not more riots. We haven't had any riots, as far as I know. <laughs> Maybe we're expecting cost of living help, increased freedoms, better education, a particular direction, foreign policy, perhaps, or tax cuts, tax raises. Probably not. Permission for an independence referendum. Did I mention that over there somewhere? Did someone say that? No? No? Okay. Well, we won't do a vote on that. It's fine. Well, wherever you stand, whether in this case or in a general election, there is a sense in which every new potential leader wants to be, show they're a candidate of hope, of change. And every voter is looking for that same hope too. Well, the sense of hope was probably not very different back in first century Israel. There were high hopes for the new Roman provincial governor of the region in AD 59. We know from an historian of the time that his predecessor, Felix, was recalled to Rome to explain to the emperor his savage oppression of a civil rights movement. So this guy, Festus, ha uh, Felix, sorry, had a, 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 a reputation as a nasty piece of work. He left an early Christian called Paul in jail, languishing for two years because he was hoping for a bribe to get him out. But now... Felix's immoral ways have caught up with him, and he's been recalled to Rome. A new Roman provincial governor coming to the area, and I wonder how people were feeling. Maybe the governor will charge us fairer taxes. Maybe the backlog in criminal justice cases will be finally sorted. Perhaps you'll finally sort out those potholes. Well, I wonder what Paul was thinking in prison. Two years into an apparently indefinite sentence. Is this the man who is going to give me my hope of freedom? the justice I deserve? Is this the leader who offers hope? Well, back then, and probably not too different from nowadays, the answer is probably a bit of yes and no. And in a few years' time, we're going to be saying the same thing about a new leader. Is this the candidate of change? We don't know much about Felix's replacement called Festus. He seems to be a bit fairer than, Fe than Felix and also th those who followed him. But we do get some insights from today's account. So as Bankier reads to us the historical accounts of events at that time, try and build a picture of what you think this guy is like and how you think Paul might have responded to him. So Bankier, where are you? Great, fantastic. Um, just to note, while Bankier's reading, you'll hear some, some places mentioned. Um, this is my Google Maps journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea, two places uh, that are mentioned here. It's about an hour and 35 on the, was it highway? Highway 2, I think it was. Um, but effectively, they're quite close. They're in the same area. Uh, Caesarea is where the Roman government system sits, who oversee the area, and Jerusalem is where the Jewish leaders are. So, Banki, over to you. Okay. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, 
they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the courts and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had confessed, conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respect to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked them, and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they, ha- they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but conveyed the courts the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes he had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he could be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on the on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for emperor's decision, I ordered him held until, held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Wonderful. Thank you, Banke. So, as soon as Festus enters his post, he goes to Jerusalem as normal to pay his respects and gets to know senior Jews on their turf. Now, it's two whole years since Paul has faced the Jews on trial with Felix. And so, was he right to fear that they still had it in for him? Yes, they was. Three days into this new governor and they're pressing charges again. But the Jews saw that this was unlikely to have a different outcome to last time where the the Roman governor of the time realized there wasn't any charge against him. So they ask Paul if Paul can be transferred to Jerusalem so they can ambush and kill him on the way. 
Festus refuses, at least initially, maybe he senses some foul play. Now, the list of their accusations seems to have grown since their last attack two years ago. We don't learn the specifics in this account, but we can pick up the gist from the 15 words Paul makes in response to his defense. He's essentially saying the same as his defense in the last trial. He says, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple. But now, he adds, or against Caesar. So this suggests the charges have now included not only anti-Jewish behavior, but also anti-Roman behavior. The charges have expanded against Paul while he's been imprisoned to now include being an enemy of the state, an enemy of Caesar himself. Something the Jews know is an offense the Romans consider worthy of execution. So as we consider the handling of this case, it's important to realize that the Roman justice system actually has many good points, many strengths. The author of this, this book, called Luke, has previously presented it as a positive thing in many, in many ways. But today's passage is right bang in the middle of three defenses that Paul has to make between diff- before different audiences, different interrogators. We read last week about the first trial where Felix heard the case against Paul and then kept him in prison for two years in the hope he'd try to make a bribe to get his way out. This is the second trial, and there's another one next week. Three trials with no progress, no justice, no hope. We're going to zoom out a minute and just in the broader section see there are three declarations of Paul's innocence, all from unlikely sources. Firstly, we have Claudius from a few weeks ago. He's a commander of the Roman garrison. When Paul was arrested, as part, there was a riot against him and the crowds are building up and Paul was, was effectively rescued by this guy Claudius to try and investigate what was going on and why there was this riot. So Claudius, commander of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, says this. I found there were, the accusation had to do with their questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. Then forward to, to chapter 25, verse 25, our passage today. Festus, the Roman governor, says this. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. And we'll see next week. In chapter 26, 32, it says, This man, this is King Agrippa, the Jewish king of the time, the leader. He says, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. This man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. Now, just, just look at these different people. None of these speakers should be sympathetic to Paul. Paul is starting with a disadvantage here. In all, these, all the statements he makes, he, he links himself, he identifies with Jesus Christ who the Romans killed under pressure from the Jewish authorities of the time. So by saying these statements, each of these Romans and Jews actually go against the traditions and the default position of their people. But they state these things because they are obvious to anyone looking at the evidence. Three trials, three declarations of innocence, and still no justice. Now zooming into our passage today, This apparently robust justice system crumbles even further. See how Luke emphasizes this in the word that he uses several times, charis, which means favor or grace, charis. He uses it several times in this passage. 24 verse 27, the the first verse we read, says this. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews... He left Paul in prison. Then on to 25 verse 3. They, that's the Jews, requested Festus as a favor 
to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Chapter 25, verse 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Luke uses this this word, favor, three times in just ten verses. The chances of a fair trial were pretty slim. Three favors offered or requested. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against favors in themselves. That's great. But but most people here would agree that no just judge would be amenable or accept requests to favor him or herself at the expense of the accused. Imagine with me for a minute a courtroom with a defendant pleading guilty against a bank robbery. Sorry, forget that. They're pleading innocent <laughs> uh, uh, in, a, in a bank robbery. The case against him is far from proven. The jury's split. And then the prosecution stands up and says, if you vote this man guilty, I'll count it as a personal favour and I'll owe you one. Imagine that. That is not justice, is it? That wouldn't happen. It wouldn't be allowed. It's ludicrous. But favours seem to be flying around this courtroom. Paul recognises this too. It's hidden in our translated Bibles, but the original Greek mentions this word charis again in verses 10 to 11 uh, on the screen you'll see. Paul proclaims his innocence again. Here's what he says. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. Hand me over to them. Use that same, that same Greek root word, charis. Paul is saying, if these charges are not true, no one can grant favours to those seeking to have me killed. Paul sees the danger, the very real danger he is in. The hope he may have held in this new leader, Felix, uh, Festus, has been smashed. He sees the very real risk of death. He doesn't fear death if he deserves it, but he knows he isn't deserving. And so he makes a bold decision. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, this appeal is not like any appeal today where a verdict has been reached and, and the convicted person has to appeal against it. He appeals to the highest court in the land, the em- of the whole empire, because he doesn't trust the local system to bring justice. That's one side of it, but there's also a whole other side of it which we've been exploring over the last few weeks. There's something else at play here. You see, Jesus has previously promised Paul that he will testify about Jesus in Rome, just as he's done in Jerusalem. So Paul knew it was God's plan to get him to Rome, and he trusted it would happen. And by appealing to Caesar, he knew it would take him to Rome. Three trials, three declarations of innocence, three favours, all revolving around unclear and unfounded charges. Well, Festus explains a little more about the real issue when he recounts these charges to the Jewish king a bit later on in the passage. This is to Agrippa. This is what he says in verse 18 and 19. He says, When Paul's accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I'd expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. Well, as we've seen in previous weeks, the heart of Paul's message is the message of the resurrection of Jesus. 
And this is the true heart of the opposition against Paul. We've seen it time again over the last few weeks, and we'll see it again. The resurrection is what people don't like. They make up all sorts of charges against him, being a troublemaker, a ringleader, desecrator, a rebel against Caesar. But this was because the Romans wouldn't execute Paul over a matter relating to their own religious beliefs. They had to make out Paul to be a threat to Rome. It wasn't surprising for Paul to be defending himself against unfair charges in an unjust system at the mercy of an unjust judge. That's what his saviour, Jesus, endured too. He was falsely charged by Jewish leaders who also brought their case to the Roman governor of that time called Pilate. Now, At the time, Paul was even part of that Jewish system responsible. And the verses we're about to read, which are by the same author, Luke, but a few years earlier, these verses talk about someone called Herod. King Agrippa's full name is Herod Agrippa II, great nephew of the Herod mentioned here. So in these verses, we see three characters. We see a prisoner, a Roman governor, and a Herod. And here we see three more declarations of innocence. Let's read from Luke 23. You see it on the screen. Luke 23, verse 4. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Then a bit further on, he says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see, and he has done nothing to deserve death. The crowds kept chanting for execution, and for the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished, and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. Three declarations of Jesus' innocence, and yet Pilate sent Jesus to his death. Why? As a favor to the Jews. Paul has no confidence that the Jews or the Romans will enact justice. He saw the same process happen to Jesus at his trial. Or like Paul, Jesus didn't deserve death. Unlike Paul, and unlike anyone here today, you, me, anyone else, Jesus lived a perfect life. The most unjust act ever carried out was the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Bible makes the point that the punishment of Jesus is the way in which we imperfect people can be made right with God. Jesus, the perfect person, willingly took on that himself. But soon after he was killed, justice was achieved. Jesus came back to life. The unjust punishment of the crucifixion was reversed by the truly just judge, God himself. The resurrection is an act of real justice because he never deserved death in the first place. God is in control of the crucifixion of Jesus and the trials of Paul. In one, he restores humanity to himself through the death of his son. In the other, he endures he ensures that that message of redemption is brought to Rome, despite the best efforts of its opponents. So, we've, we've seen a, big, a lot about the, the big message of this passage and, and the, the wider context, but what does it mean for us today, 21st century Edinburgh? 
Well, Matt spoke to us a few weeks ago about how the resurrection is the heart of the Christian message. It's the heart of Paul's message too. And it's the heart of the case against him. That's why the opposition is so fierce. And we see all the resurrection is true justice for Jesus. But the Bible teaches that all people will be resurrected one day. And that's when justice will come. The historical resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God will raise all people one day in the future. We all long for justice, whether for ourselves, our loved ones, our nation, or others across the world. Justice doesn't seem to come through this apparently robust Roman judicial system. And it's not just in first century Israel or Rome. It's in 21st century Edinburgh, Britain, and the world. Maybe it's the unfair processes and systems of our land. The delays and the bureaucracy that gets in the way of right things being done, good things being done. Or maybe it's through excessive punishment or underpunishment for crimes committed. I've been listening to some true crime podcasts recently. I've been struck how the UK justice system prides itself on our impartiality and our excellence. But very often, things just take too long and more people are harmed along the way. Well, each person here today will have a story of how the system, to varying degrees, has let us down. Some of the stories I know of people here are truly heartbreaking. Maybe you've experienced this for yourself or know of people who have. I have a friend who recently received a police, police caution for answering a question posed by a, a political activist in a way that that person didn't like. We're all becoming aware of the impact of the rising cost of living, and the most vulnerable in our society are being impacted by that the most. The international systems of justice currently seem unable to stop the terrible injustice happening right now in Ukraine and other countries further afield. It's likely that some of these systems have protected us as well, to some degree, but ultimately, every system of, of our land is imperfect, sometimes grossly so. That's been the case for every system of every land, of every era, and yet we still long for and expect the right things to happen. Why do we think it's achievable? Well, although the situations are very different, the injustice and the failing systems of Paul's day are echoed through the centuries to those of our own day. And we still ask that same question. Is there hope of justice? And we have the same answer, yes and no. We know the systems are broken, administered by imperfect people. There is injustice now. But yes, there is a hope of justice in the resurrection of Jesus. Now perhaps you're here today and that idea of resurrection of Jesus is is a major issue as you assess whether Christianity has any potential of being true. Thank you for being here. I completely get where you're coming from. In my line of work as a doctor, I have sadly had to um, confirm many people as dead and not one of them has come back to life. Dead people are dead. So how can I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, for me, the answer is fairly simple. I believe the most likely explanation for Jesus' death, burial, and then an empty tomb is that he rose to life again. On the weight of the available evidence, this seems the most plausible explanation. And the worldview that this produces makes sense of my experience of life. See how Festus explained his thoughts in verse 20. 
Paul's accusers had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. Well, if you're puzzled by the resurrection, I don't blame you. But I would urge you, for the sake of intellectual credibility, to investigate these matters. Festus was at a loss. You don't have to be. On that black bookcase over there, you'll see some books. Uh, One of them is called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. It's a great little summary of some of the evidence behind um, uh, thoughts about the resurrection and and why why Christians believe it. I'd urge you to take away a copy. It's a free gift. Just take it away, um, and we'd love to um, hear what you think of it. Or you can go to this website, bit.ly forward slash resurrection evidence, which takes you to a page which has got full of, full of thoughts and talks and, and articles on this topic. If you're online, you should be able to see a, a button you can click now, and it will, it will be on there now. It's really important to delve into this, because this claim is big, and if it's real, it changes absolutely everything. So we shouldn't just show it away as if, oh, this, this thing doesn't happen, so I'm not going to believe it. Obviously, lots of people do, so why not investigate it? Well, if you're here today as someone who has investigated this claim and has come to the same conclusion as me, then this passage has plenty to teach us too. Notice how Paul's trust in the resurrection of Jesus plays out in his life. He's not reckless, but he is fearless. He writes elsewhere this about the resurrection. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. We can persevere through the trials and difficulties that this life brings because we have a hope that doesn't depend on our performance, our health, our wealth, our relationships. No matter what happens, our perseverance through these things is not in vain. Living in the hope of the resurrection means we can need this world less and love this world more. If our ultimate hope is in anything, anything else, politics, work, money, pleasure, even family, then that hope is transient, it's it's fleeting, it's fundamentally insecure. And therefore it's no real hope at all, it's not certain, there's no certainty about it. But for Jesus, for Paul and for us, a secure future means a free present free to engage productively in this messy world, this unjust world, where we feel grounded because of our hope in the resurrection. If we know we have a sure and a certain future, this changes everything now. Well, how do we direct our hope there? It will probably look different for each of us, but one thing it won't look like is passively drifting towards it because everything around us is driving us to focus and hope in the here and now. Maybe it looks like discussing it with one another, intentionally asking, how do you find your hope? Maybe it looks like praying for clarity. Maybe it looks like reading the Bible or another book about it. I've got a couple of books here which I found really helpful thinking about it. One is called uh, Eternity Changes Everything. I'd be very happy to, to lend it to you. Another one is The Resurrection in Your Life. Um, really great, great to read books about this and help us think about it. But one other way we can do is, is sing about it. And that's what I'm going to do just now. I'll invite the band up uh, to, to come and um, sing for us and, and lead us in song. Um, there are loads of great songs that help us to gaze at the resurrection. Now listen to these words we're about to sing. Uh, Colin, do you want to come up? And, yeah. uh, these words we're about to sing. 
When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, it will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. So, Hope City, wherever you're going, wherever you're going going through, if your hope is in Jesus, you can persevere like Paul because of the resurrection to come. Let's sing now and we'll have some, if you have any questions, do put them in the the, uh, Slido. I'd love to have a go at answering them. Thanks.